Our first lesson for today will serve as the basis for our sermon text. Its theme is drawn from the gospel lesson, which you'll hear in a few minutes. In our gospel lesson, we're going to hear the account of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which might seem a little strange to some of you if you haven't done that before on the first Sunday in Advent. But there's a reason that we often begin the season of Advent by focusing on Christ, our King. It helps us better understand and appreciate who it is whose birth we're about to celebrate. And in order to focus us on Christ the King today, we're going to focus on the kingdom of the King. We hear a description of that kingdom in Isaiah chapter 2. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer, and our king. Amen. We're going to be focusing our attention on Isaiah chapter 2 today, so if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to open back up to Isaiah chapter 2. I mentioned earlier in the service that we are going to get better acquainted with Jesus our King today by getting better acquainted with the King's kingdom. Now, this is, of course, an Old Testament portion of God's Word written in Hebrew, and one of the, one of the facets of Hebrew poetry that we'll often see is that in the middle of a section we'll find our focus. And that's true here. Toward the very end of verse 3, we find a very important verse that, that really is essential to the rest of the text. And so today we're going to start in the middle with the, the verse that starts with the words, the law. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And we talk a lot about the difference between translation and transliteration. Quick review, translation, the goal is meaning. So the goal is to take the the word in Hebrew and make it make sense to you in English. Transliteration would be when you would take the sounds of the word in Hebrew or Greek and bring those sounds into English letters. Now, here at the beginning, the translators are going for meaning but we're going to be of the opinion that they maybe missed the mark. The Hebrew word is Torah. You've heard that word before, Torah? That's the first five books of the Bible. It literally says, 
Torah will go out from Zion. Well, the translator said, well, we think that, you know, that's the law. Torah is the law. Well, that might give the opinion that the beginning of the kingdom of God, and by the way, just keep this in mind today. Whenever I say kingdom of God, mountain of the Lord, temple, house of the Lord, church of God, same thing. They're all interchangeable today, okay? So we can use those words, the church of God, the temple of God, the mountain of God, the house of God, completely interchangeably and mean the same thing. This verse says that the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord, from Jerusalem. And you could add Zion and Jerusalem to that long list of words that all refer to the kingdom of God today. Torah is not just rules, It's not as though that the church of God, the kingdom of God, is going to begin with a whole new set of rules, laws, that are going to go out from Jerusalem. No, Torah is both law and gospel. Rules, laws, which make us aware of our need for a Savior without those rules, rules which we break, we wouldn't even know that we needed a Savior. But also gospel, promises of a Savior fulfilled in Christ. And so I would suggest a better translation here might be the word instruction, because that encompasses all the teachings of God's word, both law, which show us our sins, and gospel, which show us our Savior, Jesus. This is going to go out from Zion, the place where Jerusalem sits, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, this is really important to our focus for today, because While the kingdom of God is not bound to Jerusalem, as some think, the kingdom of God is bound to the preaching of the word of God. And the preaching of the word of God had a beginning place after the work of Christ was finished. And that beginning place was Jerusalem. That's where it started. Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. Jesus rose from the dead in Jerusalem. Jesus ascended into heaven just outside of Jerusalem. The church's march into the world, the kingdom of God's march out into the the world to undergo a different kind of conquest started in Jerusalem. And so the first thing we got to file away today is, yes, this does start in Jerusalem. And the kingdom of God is one that would be directly tied to the proclamation of Torah, the proclamation of the word of God from the very beginning, and that's how it will continue to advance. Now the text begins with an interesting picture. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Literally it says, this is the word that Isaiah saw. So the question is, did he see a vision about what's going to happen here about the kingdom of God? Did he see something with his eyes or did he hear a word picture that was so vivid he could picture it with his mind? Seems likely the second of the two that God is coming to Isaiah with a very vivid revelation, a picture with words that you could see with your mind. And here's what the Lord begins with. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the geography of Jerusalem, but Mount Zion, the mountain on which Jerusalem is built, 
is 2,100 feet above sea level. It is not a very impressive mountain. If you've ever traveled out west in our country, out near, near Denver, Colorado, you know that there's all sorts of 14ers, right? 14ers are mountains that are over 14,000 feet tall. This one just is barely over 2,000. My family and I, for seven years before we came here, lived in a valley that was located at 7,200 feet above sea level. We were over 5,000 feet above Jerusalem, and we were in a plain. This is not an impressive mountain physically. And that's a really important thing for us to note right away. This is not a physical kingdom. The kingdom of God is not a kingdom of flesh and blood. It's not a kingdom of swords and nations. It's a different kind of kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. There are some today, Christians living in our nation, who legitimately believe that the physical nation of Israel, the one that is located today in the Middle East, that is a sovereign nation, must be defended because we need it to be a sovereign nation so that the Lord can fulfill this promise of making Israel the greatest nation in the world. There are some people who literally think that's what this means. That this passage means literal Zion, literal Jerusalem, literal Israel is going to become the most powerful nation in the world. That is not what this text is saying. This text is promising us that the kingdom of God is spiritual, not physical. You might remember in Isaiah's day, idols were set up on high places, on hills. False religions would find high places to build their temples. That's very common throughout the ancient world. What is this text saying? The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. It will be greater and far superior to any religion that man has ever imagined. It will be a different kind of kingdom, a superior one. And then we have one of the most important verses in the text. And all nations will stream to it. Now that's a great translation. Stream. Like a river, like a stream flows, people will flow into the church of God. Now think about what that means. You cannot take a river like the Mississippi River and reverse its flow, can you? You could try but you could not accomplish that feat. The water in the Mississippi River goes where it is going, to the mouth. It continues to flow into the Gulf of Mexico all the time. You can try to slow its progress, you could dam it up, but you cannot stop it. It will keep on flowing. And no one makes it flow. The geography of the land just funnels the water to its source. The water just flows. And the same is true with the people who become a part of the kingdom of God. They flow to it. They move toward it. They are not coerced into it. They are not forced into it. They simply want to be in it. 
I don't want to spend too much time on this point because there's so much to talk about today, but I think we have to. Our culture is certainly post-Christian. We are about to celebrate a holiday called Christmas that is ours, right? That's ours? Is that our, is that, is that our holiday? I think so. Can we say Christmas is a Christian holiday? Well, of course we can. It's the celebration of the birth of the king. But we live in a time when Christianity is not a dominant force in our culture. And the fact that it ever was maybe should be concerning. Because Christianity is not a force in the way that we think of earthly forces. And yet if we study history, we see that oftentimes Christianity went about its mission in all the wrong ways. There are many people who would consider themselves outside of the Christian church who like to point at the Christian church and point out its wickedness over the past two millennia. They'll point to things like the conquest of this very land. Oftentimes, Christians were the first ones to arrive in South America and in North America. And you'll hear stories of quote-unquote Christian missionaries who did what? came and preached the gospel with gentleness and peace? No, who brought the sword and destruction and death, who piled up books of entire cultures and burned them by the thousands, who executed anyone who wouldn't profess Christ as their savior. The historical record does not lie. I'm referencing one time in history when Christians were not Christians. They may have called themselves Christians. They may have thought they were doing the Lord's work. They may have been zealous, and they may have thought their intentions were good. But the very fact that physical force was used tells us this is not the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God preaches a message of law and gospel, law which cuts to the heart and reveals sin and wickedness inside every single human but gospel which points to a king of gentleness and peace who came into a world to save sinners. The kingdom of God does not force anyone to come into it. The kingdom of God preaches a message of peace that wins over lost souls and makes them want to come so that they would flow into it like a river flowing toward a destination. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Does that sound like a group of people being forced with a sword to go somewhere they did not want to go? Does that sound like a group of people who are robbed of their culture, of their identity? Does that sound like people who are being forced to do something they don't want to do? No. People who stream into the kingdom of God want to be there. They have heard both law and gospel and they love what they hear because the gospel is truly good news. It is news that brings joy to the heart that we would not just say rejoice once but say rejoice twice as the apostle Paul did. I say it again, rejoice. Let's go to the house of the Lord. Let's hear his word. Let's be instructed in his ways that we may walk on a path that is pleasing to him. 
Now we skip that middle verse where we started and we move on to verse 4. He, the Lord, the King, will judge between nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Next week, we're going to have this theme, Come Lord Jesus as Judge. This is not stealing thunder from next week. This is a different kind of judge. Oftentimes when you're reading poetry in the Old Testament, a point is repeated in different words to make the point. So you hear he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. Next week, our focus is going to be on the judgment between God and man as Jesus the King renders the verdict on humanity and our relationship with him. This is talking about Christ the King settling disputes between humans, settling conflicts differently from how the world settles conflicts. This is incredibly powerful stuff. The world settles conflict by saying, I'm right, you're wrong, and I'm so right and you're so wrong, I'm going to use my big strong military to crush your little weak military and we will show you who is the most powerful nation in the world. We determine conflicts by trying to identify who is right and who is wrong, as though that's always possible to identify. God's method of settling conflicts between humans is different because every single human, the good guys and the bad guys, are all bad guys. See, our way of viewing right and wrong is though we're the good guys and all the enemies of America are the bad guys. We need to use might to settle that difference. But in God's church, we're wrong and everyone else is wrong. Everyone's on the same playing field. No matter which nation's boundaries they were born within. Everyone is born sinful, equally worthy of death and hell. And Jesus is for everyone, of every nation, of every tribe, of every language, no matter what religion they grew up believing to be true. God comes in his word and he preaches a verdict. A verdict that we refer to with the word justification. Not guilty. Remember talking about that before? If a husband and wife are arguing in the home and one says to the other, stop trying to justify yourself, what are we saying? Stop trying to convince yourself that you're not guilty. Or stop trying to convince me that you're not guilty. Stop trying to justify yourself. We use that word well in English still today. Justification is God's verdict that you and I are not guilty. Well, how could that be? How could guilty sinners like us be declared not guilty? Because our king, Jesus, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey, just as it was prophesied he would do. And he did not ride with a sword and with an army to go defeat the most powerful nation in the world, the Romans, No, he rode into the hands of people 
who appeared to be far more powerful than him. The Jewish leaders, Roman soldiers, with their swords and their spears and their crosses, he rode toward a people who would use weapons of destruction to destroy his flesh and his blood. How could this king be victorious when he appeared to be defeated by people who appeared to be so much stronger than he? The king won his victory through apparent defeat. And his kingdom wins its victories in the same way, through apparent defeat. You see, just as the king rode toward his own destruction, just as the king appeared to be so much weaker than those strong soldiers who whipped him and beat him and tore his flesh apart and led him to a cross where he would die for the sins of the world, in reality, as the Almighty God, he was far more powerful than any of them. But he allowed himself to be destroyed so that you and I could be forgiven so that God could stand and declare us not guilty, so that conflict between nations could be resolved in a different way. When he says he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples, he means it. He will say, you're wrong and you're wrong. You're both wrong. The solution is not for you to figure out how you're right and to convince this one that he's wrong, the solution is for you to cling to what I've done for you in Christ. The solution is for you to cling to the not guilty verdict that Jesus won for you through his apparent defeat. They will beat their swords into plowshares. You ever seen the statue outside the United Nations? It's a big, strong guy beating a sword into a plow. Check it out sometime. Google United Nations sword plowshare big, strong guy beating a sword into a plow, which is ironic in light of our conversation today. You don't need these weapons of of battle anymore. You don't need a spear. It's going to be bent into a pruning tool to, to cut down trees. These tools for battle will no longer be needed inside the kingdom of God. This is hard for us to hear. Because we'd like the kingdom of God to be a kingdom that looks like a kingdom on earth of might and power. We'd like to welcome missionaries back from foreign theaters with great parades to celebrate their conquest of a foreign land. It's not how it works. We'd like to celebrate the victory of a congregation like Mount Olive as we go in and take over the community of Swamico. That's not how it works. The kingdom of the Christ advances in the same way that the king won his victory over sin, death, and hell through apparent defeat. All the woe are we conversations that you hear. Congregations talking about budgets that aren't being met. Pews that aren't filled like they once were. Pastors and and leaders of churches who are frustrated how little we all know. The word of God is preached and what happens? One Christian in private, no one else knows, goes and comforts a neighbor with the peace that only Jesus can bring. 
one Christian in private prays by the the bedside of a, a loved one. One mother opens a Bible and and does a devotion with her children. One father leads his family in prayer. One at a time, in private, Christians go out into the world and they share this message of gentleness and peace, this message of a king who won a victory through apparent defeat. The church marches on victorious even when you don't See it, even when it appears to be defeated by a culture that appears to be victorious, it's not. The mountain of the Lord is still established as the chief of all the mountains, the highest of them all. Your king, the one whose birth we are about to celebrate, is king of kings and lord of lords. He has defeated every enemy. He reigns, not in a different place, But filling all things right now, he is with us today and will be with us till we join him in his bodily presence for all eternity. This Advent season, do not lose sight of who your king is. Do not lose sight of the kingdom in which you are right now. Don't lose sight of what kind of kingdom we are in. A kingdom of gentleness and peace. I look forward to celebrating the birth of this king with you. And we close with the encouragement that the prophet Isaiah gave to his people. An encouragement that was for them then, but is also for you and me now. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen.